My name is Beth Redmond. I'm going to be chairing this session on culture and the crowd. Um, we've got three speakers today. Uh, the first one is Alex Niven, who's a lecturer at Newcastle University. Uh, we're going to be hearing from him first. Um, I won't do much of an introduction. I'm sure these people have got a lot more interesting things to say than I have. Hello. Okay, I'm going to start pretentiously enough uh, by reading a poem by Charles Baudelaire. Uh, so this panel is going to be a kind of cross between the London Review of Books and the Daily Mirror, just, just to warn you. Okay, so this is called Crowds. Um, it is not given to every man to take a bath of multitude. Enjoying a crowd is an art, and only he can relish a debauch of vitality at the expense of the human species on whom, in his cradle, a fairy has bestowed the love of masks and masquerading, the hate of home, and the passion for roaming. The solitary and thoughtful stroller finds a singular intoxication in this universal communion. The man who loves to, to, lo the man who loves to lose himself in a crowd enjoys feverish delights that the egoist locked up in himself as in a box, and the slothful man, like a mollusk in his shell, will be eternally deprived of. He adopts as his own all the occupations, all the joys, and all the sorrows that chance offers. Okay, so I wanted to read that quotation um, not necessarily because I agree with it, um, but because I'm interested in the idea, I think, that, you know, that there's a kind of essential value in the experience of being in a crowd of people, and I think probably you know, we all are too. Um, so that's really the starting point, the question, if you like, um, that I want to pose. As socialists, as leftists of varied stripes, you know, is the feeling and the symbolism of the crowd at the bottom of how we think and act? So I think it is, um, but I'd like to just speculate briefly um, on how the crowd functions in the lived experiences of 21st century socialists and how it might be used positively in a movement for radical political reform. Um, so I'm sure most people will, will be aware that those sentiments of Baudelaire's that I began by reading are initiating uh, and helping to crystallize, if you like, uh, the modernist tradition of the flaneur, uh, the tradition of the individual, you know, wandering eruditely through an urban environment, encountering urban crowds, um, and, you know, kind of musing intellectually um, on those crowds. This tradition begins uh, in the 19th century, of course, um, and stretches on through the 20th century, on through uh, Walter Benjamin, the Situationists, uh, and so on and so forth, on to the present day uh, to, you know, people like our very own uh, Marxist planner superstar, Owen Hadley. Um, and of course, a, another notable recent adaptation, I think, to bring in here um, that I like to sort of consider and, and, and sort of uh, play off, if you like, uh, in the context of crowds is Antonio Negri, uh, and, uh, Negri's notion of multitude, uh, the notion that in this kind of globalized, deterritorialized, uh, the, the sort of deterritorialized spaces of 21st century capitalism, um, there is potential in the spontaneous coming together of individuals in crowds to protest uh, and disrupt political and economic regimes clearly occupy Wall Street, you know, perhaps the Arab Spring might be viewed as examples of this Negrian notion of multitude. 
kind of spontaneous coming together. You know, I, forgive me, I know this is pretty, pretty obvious stuff. Um, but I'd like to just very briefly advocate or counterpose a kind of alternative to the figure of the flaneur enjoying the crowd. Um, and also the more recent Negrian idea of the deterritorialized multitude. Um, and I'd like to offer as an alternative the notion of the rooted crowd, the crowd that isn't spontaneous, uh, the crowd that is instead organized, rooted in place, perhaps built up over a long period of time, um, so the rooted crowd. Um, I think an obvious model here is sport, uh, and especially uh, in the UK and the European context, the football crowd. Um, okay, so you know, just putting to, to one side for the moment all the problematic things about football and football crowds that I'm sure we're all aware of, um, the thing I want to emphasize about the crowd at a football game for the sake of example, is that it's not spontaneous or not wholly spontaneous. It's rooted. It's built up over a number of years. It has organization and architecture. It has, you know, a ground in, in, a, in a very literal sense. Um, and I think that for all the obvious negative sides of this, this model, it has certain obvious advantages. Perhaps most importantly, uh, and I you know, speak from personal experience here, the experience of being part of a football crowd over a number of years instills in you a psychological mentality that is qualitatively very unique in the 21st century West. Um, and I think you know, this is the knowledge, the certainty that we are at our best as human beings in the mass. I think this is a very profound experience you know, that's quite rare and quite extraordinary. And it cuts against all manner of modern platitudes about the individual, about the ego, about interiority, and so on and so forth. Um, and as I say, this was you know, my experience growing up as a long-suffering Newcastle supporter. Um, this quite qualitatively unique experience of crowd is really the basis of, of, of my socialism, uh, this fundamental and perhaps even you know, spiritual or quasi-spiritual belief that the individual is happiest in the collective, in the crowd. I think it, you know, it's quite important sometimes to remind ourselves as socialists that we all have this belief somewhere, in some form, deep down. Uh, and for me, as I say, you know, this belief was instilled by the sort of rooted crowd uh, I experienced at, at football games. Okay, so that's the first point I wanted to raise about the rooted crowd uh, and to raise for discussion, really, um, this notion of a kind of you know, elemental solidarity. You know, this, it's not something that's talked about very often. It's a bit like, you know, the way that music journalists never quite get around to talking about melody in, uh, you know, in, in pop tunes. I think, similarly, socialists don't often talk about collectivity itself as a, a kind of bedrock of value. Okay, so that's the first thing I want to raise, this notion of an elemental solidarity that's built up in various kinds of communities rather than just appearing spontaneously in a Baudelairean or Negrian sense. But of course, the million-dollar question is, you know, how can this sort of experience find meaningful expression in socialist action and activity? You know, so radical revolutionary movements always involve a crowd at some stage. And I think the best revolutions have always had many crowds. Um, you know, so I, I, I accept the criticisms of so-called horizontalism, 
you know, this, this notion that political change never really happens through uh, small-scale groups alone, you know, sort of doing small good deeds and so on and so forth. You know, clearly you can't overhaul the status quo in this way. You need some kind of vanguard party asserting ideas and strategies. Nevertheless, it seems pretty obvious to me that alongside a vanguard party, you also need a number or a network of organized groups, organized crowds, organized collectives. Um, so, you know, this is no kind of a vowel of, of folk politics, so-called, uh, but clearly you do need folk, you do need people, collectives of people to do anything of political value. It's all, you know, very obvious stuff. Um, so just to take this specific, this very specific example, uh, which, you know, I've acknowledged is, is kind of quite limited, but nevertheless, um, you know, I'm going to use it anyway. Uh, is, there any, is there any radical potential in a, fo in a football crowd, in a football ground? Um, so this is, you know, something I've, I've written about and a question I've thought about a huge amount. Um, you know, but it seems to me that if you take something like the English Premier League, uh, the, the kind of the football Premier League. This is a kind of undead shell of British class struggle. So you have the cartoon capitalists on the one hand, uh, and on the other, the exploited masses. You know, there's a lot of dismissal of so-called nostalgic leftism, I think. Um, but I think football is very interesting because it's both traditionally proletarian, for the most part, and Similarly, you know, simultaneously, the vanguard of ultra-modern neoliberal capitalism. It seems to traverse this sort of leftist squabble between traditional and futurist or accelerationist forms of leftism. Uh, and to be honest, I haven't, you know, got around, got around to answering this question um, about what to do with something like football culture. You know, so, you know, how do you use football culture as part of a movement for political change? I don't know. Um, I was quite interested a few years ago in football supporters trusts, you know, these uh, kind of supporters unions that sprung up um, around about 10 years ago to sort of advocate supporter interests in the face of sort of rampant exploitation by, you know, chairman owners of football clubs. Um, I'm not quite sure what to think of supporters trusts right now. You know, they always have to deal with this sort of inherent complacency and conservatism that you get, um, you know, amongst football supporters. Football supporters trust, you know, haven't actually got all that much done over the last 10 years. Maybe they will in the, in the near future. I don't know. Um, but yeah, just to kind of round off, I think, you know, the main point I want to make is that, you know, looking at something like a football ground, it's clear that contrary to current platitudes about atomism, individualism, so on and so forth. Even in this country, I think crowds do not only still exist, they're actually still quite central to our lived experiences. You know, we're still living in the mass. And I think, you know, there's this desperate, desperate need for the left to organize on this sort of cultural ground. Um, you know, to recruit large, organized crowds of people, perhaps using the model of the football crowd perhaps, you know, even organizing at a large-scale public event like a football game. The project of the left must really, I think, be one of elemental re-socialization. Elemental re-socialization. You know, the organized crowd, the rooted crowd has to feature centrally here. 
not necessarily in opposition to the spontaneous multitudes, um, but I think you know, there are severe limitations to notions of spontaneous, merely spontaneous collectivity. Um, alongside this kind of collectivity, I think you, know, you also need to think about what's important and unique about more embedded forms of solidarity and collectivity. So, I'll pass it on. Thank you. Next up, we've got Owen Hathaway. Here you go. Okay. Um, I, I, I feel a little bit interpolated by a bit of that. Um, the, 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 one of the things people often forget with Walter Benjamin's analysis of the flaneur is that flaneur is an insult. That flaneur, in that particular sense, is you know someone that's just a, a sort of almost a sort of urban speculator. You know, they 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 they, they drift through the arcades as the kind of almost in the way that like today you know writers like. Ian Sinclair kind of serve as like the kind of advance guard of like discovering an area and then making it safe for Guardian readers to go and move into. And I probably had a role in that in a certain way in Brutalist Architecture, and I'm very sorry to everybody. But the um, uh, and I, I but I feel I want to defend this position a little bit. And and one of the things that I'm only briefly going to talk about me because you brought it up, and then I'll stop. Um, but the um, one of the things I've always got as a, as a criticism is he doesn't really talk to people I get that a lot of kind of like goes to a place, looks at it, writes about it doesn't talk to people and I, I suppose but before I say what I, what, I, what I want to say about this I, I don't really I don't have a problem with any of this per se I don't think, I'm not going to make any sort of point about like, oh if you have these crowds then inevitably they will you know, be some sort of terrifying oppressive mass it's just I have always sort of feeling of like yeah I'm glad that exists but it's not for me and I, I, I suppose there's always been that kind of like uh, you know the, the, the thing that kind of comes along with, with talk of, of community um, is often that there are certain things about sort of rooted communities that are deeply unpleasant um, and I've always and the, 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 with that can often come a sort of a sort of ruthless policing of the way that that, that, that that community works and a certain sort of insularity will come with it. And there's the, I was that sort of thinking about the, 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 the divide that was made a long time ago by the German sociologist Ferdinand Tönnies about um, Gemeinschaft versus Gesellschaft, the kind of difference between this kind of, um, this sort of rooted and usually it would be assumed rural um, Gemeinschaft of a kind of, Authentic community, and later, you know, people who are more or less openly fascist, such as Martin Heidegger, very much kind of run with this, with this sort of idea of, of sort of of sort of rooted communities, with um, you know, rooted to the land and the soil and the stone and the local, etc., 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 and the kind of rootless cosmopolitan metropolitan Gesellschaft. And I'm firmly on the side of the latter, I must admit, and I. I should probably try and justify this. And I, I think there's... Obviously, there's been lots of writers that have tried... To, that have made one justification or another of this. Um, thinking in particular of Marshall Berman's work on the modernist city and all that is solid melts into wear and his later book on, on, on Times Square about the sort of... The sort of writing about the metropolitan crowd in such a way that the, the, the metropolitan crowd is a thing that you can move in but, and, and can be absorbed by but which doesn't, unlike a small town crowd or a particular group, it, it, you, you know, it, doesn't, it doesn't necessarily know who you are, and this doesn't necessarily matter. Um, and I think that's... I, 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 
I think that that sort of anonymity of the big city is something that's actually quite quite worth defending and isn't necessarily inimical to any, to, to any socialist politics. I'd always felt enormously, um, oddly sort of proud of the fact that a pub in southeast London that I've been going to on and off for about 18 years never, ever says, do you want the usual? I'm, I'm very, very pleased about this. It's like this, you know, it's, it's a big city. They do, do not want to be known. Um, you know, and, and having gone from a town in which I was known to a city in which nobody had any idea of who I was, I found an enormously liberating thing. Um, the last time I can remember everyone knowing who I was in an area, this was the time in which I got my head kicked in most often. So I tend to see those things as not being, not, not being entirely coincidental. Um, so I guess the question is whether or not that, whether or not you can reconcile this, which probably sounds perilously close to some sort of misanthropy, although I don't think it is, with any kind of socialism, because socialism necessarily is, is based on the idea that, that, that um, unless you're a, a Fabian or a Stalinist, is based on the idea that people can um, and should run a society democratically and socially, hence the word, and it should be based on, 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 on some kind of... Um, you know, whether, whether you believe in direct democracy or not, but some, some kind of society that... that, that it's based almost at, 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 at where decisions are made almost at a local level. Um, so, and, 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 and in, you know, in, in the way that the, the, the cities have worked, this has always been an enormously difficult thing to do. Um, you know, the, 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 the kind of, um, I guess, what, one, one, what, 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 what seems at this distance, like the most successful kind of left-wing moment in cities of the kind of you know, the sort of particularly post-war, but also pre-war kind of moment of municipal socialism, of, you know, of huge efforts being made, it would seem, in the interest of the working class in housing and healthcare and public facilities and what have you, and provision of parks and so forth, um, was done with very, very, very little public consultation. In fact, less public consultation than now, this era that we're living through of... Um, you know, of, of privatised public space and the destruction of social housing and, and, and sort of new waves of Rachmanism and slum creation um, is also one that has a huge quantity of um, consultation, um, which, is, which has been legally mandated, in fact, since the 1970s. And sometimes these things are quite desultory. Sometimes it's a, it's a coffee morning where you turn up and you tick a box. Sometimes it's more intensive. Um, but it has coincided with an era in which... Um, it would seem, just in terms of like, of sort of basic terms of people's interests, that, 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 that cities have actually become less democratic and have run less in the interests of all, as I would perceive it, um, than they were during this very, very statist era. And this is an enormously difficult thing, thing to reconcile. So, so the 80s in particular are full of these sort of waves of sort of neighbourhood participation and community architecture and so on. And what they usually succeeded in doing... Um, was creating more or less successful elective enclaves, which within them, in the old kind of utopian socialist tradition, could be quite wonderful. You know, if you were in Coyne Street in London or if you were in the Aldonian Village in Liverpool, um, you know, you could be in an environment where you had far more control than you would if you were in straightforward private housing or in straightforward public housing. Um, but somehow these things were always created by sort of groups that that knew each other, 
and where if you wanted to join that group, it would be necessary that it was considered that you would be, to use a, to use a more businessy phrase, a, a good team player. The interview process at somewhere like Coin Street is, you know, is sort of designed to make sure that you're not just anyone, that you're going to be a good member of the cooperative. Um, and I think, you know, necess- of necessity, this kind of almost sort of select people with, with fairly sharp elbows. Um, so whether or not... Um, uh, so, so, so as to you know whether or not again this, this, in, in something like, like like city planning, you 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 can reconcile these things. I think is like one of is very very difficult. But one 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 distinction that comes to mind is sort of possible ways that, that something like this would work is um, in the in, in the Soviet Union, which I like to mention whenever possible. Um, there was um, an interesting distinction between uh, the Dom Commune and the Kommunalka, and rather typically lots of Soviet things, there are a lot of Kommunalki and very, very few Dom Communa. So um, a Kommunalka was basically when you had like a sort of subdivided um, bourgeois apartment, usually in one of the big cities, which people would then divide up. So you would, and you would have like a family to a room and you would share a kitchen and a loo and so forth. And, you know, at the height of industrialization you would possibly have a couple of families to a room but you know anyway this is the, the, the basic model and which you're kind of almost sort of forced of necessity into a kind of collective life that um in most accounts although pe- those people sometimes have a certain affection for it in most accounts was fairly oppressive it was a sort of management of of of, of scarcity and a, and, and a kind of fight over 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 resources and in, in, in a case in which the resource was, was space um and you know, not a particularly good model. And very much on this kind of like forced collectivity, everyone in the Communalka will know you and they will know what you're doing. Um, and the other option, of which there were very, very few, a handful built in the 20s and a handful were built in the 60s, of the, of, of the house commune was very much a kind of, you know, an attempt to sort of reconcile these, the, 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 these two questions and that you would have... Um, Fairly small apartments, but which nonetheless, you know, you could go in there and close and lock your door and it was your particular place, your part of it, and you could leave it at any point and it was an individualised part of the building. Um, and within that, the kind of various collective facilities were provided. The most famous one, the Domnarkomfin in Moscow, you had like a, you know, a library and gymnasium and, and various kind of public facilities in a, in a kind of connected building. And the canteen, which it was encouraged that you could go and eat in that canteen with everyone else. But you didn't have to. You could also just eat. You know, and that, 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 that I found a, a quite interesting thing of a kind of, you know, that the, 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 the crowd being, I mean, if we're talking about crowds in terms of quite small terms here, but, you know, that this could be something which is entered into much more, much more casually. You can or you can not. You can live in this very, very intensive way of, like, you know, knowing all your neighbours, or you or you can choose not to. And this, and this is all sort of provided. And so, so I think that's, that's probably the, you know, that, that sort of a, of a way of thinking about, about sort of collectivity in space is probably more interesting to me than one where, like, sort of forced into, in, 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 into a feeling of, of sort of collectivity that can be possibly quite stifling. So this is sort of some attempt to argue for why socialism should have run from misanthropy.
Thank you. And now we've got Abby Wilkinson. Um, okay, so I'm not an academic. Um, so so what, I, what I'm interested in um, when I consider the panel topic is sort of movement building and mechanisms for change and how we sort of... Sort of when, when I think about the kind of energy... Um, kind of... Is that not working? Okay. Um, so sort of the parallels between... Um, kind of supporting a football team and becoming a socialist or um, you know becoming a fan of a particular genre of music and the way I you know my, my personal feeling and what I've witnessed um, is that the kind of feeling of being at a football match and the feeling of being at a protest in many ways it's a similar sort of feeling and it's um you know you, you might have a goal but it's like in the moment it's a sort of collective we're doing something I belong here I'm part of something um, for kind of flipping that on its head, I guess what I wanted to talk to you guys as, um, you, know, p you know, part of the left is about sort of maybe the, neg the negative aspect of um, collective identity. Because if you've got, um, when you've got an in-group, you've got an out-group. Um, and what's been worrying me a lot recently um, with the sort of rise of leftish candidates in the UK and the US is the extent to which I feel... There's a, I don't know, there's sort of, it's like, you know, we are, we are us, and if you're not us, then fuck off and join the Tories, that sort of mindset. Um, and I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, um, if, yeah, just, just the, prob, like, the problems with collective identity in politics, if, you, if you're not open to cooperating, if you're not open to try and expand, if it's like, if it becomes the same way as, you know, it's my music, you won't have heard of it, it's, this is how I define myself, this is my politics, it's the good politics, you know, I can't work with you. Um, so yeah, just the, just the negative aspects of collective identity in politics. I don't have a big, long introduction, I'm sorry about that, but I sort of was hoping to get people's opinions on that kind of thing.